Welcome back to Trending in Education. Dan Strapper, Michael Palmer, Melissa Griffith with you on this episode. And today we're talking about gender equity, equity in pay, equal pay, and more off of the U.S. women's soccer team. Exciting win in the World Cup and so much more at present. I want to welcome in Mike and Melissa. Mike, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Uh, I'm happy to be talking about this uh, topic. And uh, I'm going to try not to mansplain into it. I'm going to uh, uh, give Melissa the floor a little bit to, uh, to introduce the topic. But, uh, but it's not a topic that's just relevant to women. It's a topic that's relevant to uh, all of us. And uh, that was one of the things that was pretty inspiring about the U.S. women's soccer team is that uh, it seemed to capture the national attention, the global attention, really, uh, not as women's sports, but as sport. And, uh, and then even some of the issues around equity are not just about equity for women. They're more just about equity issues uh, in general. So uh, it's very zeitgeisty. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, uh, happy to have uh, Melissa on the show to help us explore this. Zeitgeist appears early on this episode. Glad to have uh, Zeitgeisty in the works. Melissa, how are you doing? Uh, first, I may need a definition later on Zeitgeisty, but you know I may not be paying attention a lot. But happy to be back here again on on trending education. Uh, excited to talk about this topic. It's a topic that is I'm passionate about. Uh, I am no expert. I don't think just being a woman makes me an expert, but I do have a lot of opinions on it. And I think the best thing we can do here is just keep a conversation going between men, women, and everyone in companies in the workplace about it. Yeah, and you may not be an expert, but you have read some stuff, right? So, like, you're not, like, completely unprepared for this conversation. I am not completely unprepared. I do, on um, topics I like, I do tend to do research. Yeah, which is... Expertise, uh, which... haven't you guys covered this before? It takes, like, 10,000 hours of training to sure. become an expert. Yeah. I haven't done 10,000 hours of training yet. A little bit of deliberative, deliberate practice never hurt anybody, for sure. As we uh, dive in, talking about the women's national team uh, for U.S. soccer, really has kick-started this conversation on a national, and Mike said, on a global level. Uh, they went on to win the, the Women's World Cup and is now, alas, saw Melissa, I believe, in mediation. We're talking about this before recording, but uh, still some uh, details to hammer out exactly how this moves forward. Uh, from your perspective, what has the women's team brought to the forefront? What discussion points do you think they open up around pay equity and equality when it comes to pay? I mean, uh, I'm, I'm glad they've, they brought it up. I don't think the women's soccer team should have had to bring it up, but I'm, I'm very happy it's there. I think what's interesting to me is that in this case, among so many others that we see, that the women's team in their sport relative to the U.S. team at this present time, uh, present moment in time, they're so overwhelmingly better than the men's team, right? And so to have that as the, the backdrop for this conversation is very interesting. Because I, I think I, when I was doing a lot of the reading on this topic, the U.S. women's team right now, I think for winning the World Cup, they're going to get paid like $250,000. If the men won the U.S. World Cup, they would be paid a million dollars. There's something clearly outbalanced in, in, in that situation. So you, like, I, I've heard a lot of arguments around the place that like men, like they, the women right now are being paid just as much as men, but they're being paid just as much as men because they're winning whereas the men are not even qualifying for the latest World Cup. Mm -hmm. 
Right. On a, on a per player basis or per game basis, the women are making much less, but they are seemingly on average making the same because the men are not playing nearly as many games or in as big tournaments as uh, the men. Probably uh, as the discussion goes on, pay equity versus equal pay is also an interesting distinction to hammer out as we talk through it. Uh, but Mike, from your perspective, talking about sport and sports and what this women's team brought to the forefront, uh, it's a discussion we've had off air and around pay equity. We've discussed it with Melissa. What do you think it did to energize this discussion to make it zeitgeisty, to make it part of the national discussion around how this topic should really play? Sure. And uh, zeitgeist is the spirit of the times, uh, just to define the word. Uh, it's, a, it's a German word, I believe. Uh, so I think zeit means spirit and geist means times. Uh, that's the nice thing about German uh, etymology is it's usually a lot of things conjuncted together and then if you know what those things mean that's what the word means so zeitgeist and zeitgeisty means uh like a zeitgeist so uh and i say it a lot on the show but um yeah what i found really uh fascinating uh and i was reflecting on a little bit more is that uh typically when the u.s team does well the fans chant usa usa and in this context, when the women's team was getting close to, to victory, uh, the chant in France was equal pay, equal pay. And uh, that to me is indicative of uh, a sea change. Like people were thinking differently. And I think that even though it may be unfortunate that we can't make these types of uh, changes to how everybody thinks without things like the women's soccer team in the U.S. Uh, crushing it, um, it's still good when it happens. And it does feel like it is a watershed moment, a, an inflection point for us all that, you know, tens of thousands of fans in France were chanting equal pay. And then when the ticker tape parade happened, it was it wasn't uh, just a side point that uh, Megan Rapino and the team were making around pay equity. It was really, in some ways, what the team was rallying around. Uh, it was even a motivator for them, uh, as far as I could tell. Um, I think those kinds of things are the type of thing that we want to pay attention to on this show. So, like, what's the trend? And by the time something like this resonates to that point, um, it's something that we all should be talking about. And then as like a learning and education show, um, you know, are there teachable moments coming out of this? Like, what can we learn from this example? Because I think, uh, you know, I would echo Melissa's thinking on this too, in that it's not really just about, about pay equity for the U.S. women's soccer team. I mean, that's great. If they get it, wonderful but it's more about why is there this inequity throughout our society and what kind of tactics can we take to affect some change? First of which is see how the U.S. women's soccer team can get, you know, their equity. But, uh, but I was happy to see that it was sort of bleeding into a bigger conversation around pay equity in general. And I think that's something uh, that I think we did want to explore as part of this conversation as well. 
Now, Melissa, if we take that as sort of a basis here and, and take this story around uh, the women's national team and try to apply it outside of their sphere to the general discussion around pay equity, take this story and to Mike's point, what can we learn from it? How can we move forward with it? What are some key takeaways to you from this discussion and how we might apply it to the world of education? We have stuff from the World uh, Economic Forum around general studies. We have a Georgetown study on gender and equity in education and learning. What can we take away and start moving into a discussion on what we've learned and how we can move forward? Yeah, so I mean, plus one to everything Mike uh, has said already uh, on this topic. Look, in general, like I'm, I think the women's, uh, the women's soccer team is going to get something out of it. I am watching with Braden Brett to see what comes out of mediation, like whether it's something that they, they, are, they agree is fair or whether it's something that it's just good enough to like quell all the noise around it. But for sure, just given the high profile nature of it, something's going to happen for them. What I think we can take away from that just in, in general is like, it's not happening in soccer. You can look at the trends. You can, it happens, it happens in, in science job, it happens in teaching, it happens in, in, in finance, it happens in almost every job across the board. You, you see this sort of pay equity, especially as you rise through, towards the ranks. And unless you, we can put a spotlight on it across the board like we do in, uh, we've done in soccer, it's not gonna change. And I think that's one of the things that we, we should open up the conversation about. Like if women are not talking about it more, if women are not asking about it more, if we're not raising the awareness about it more, like nothing's gonna change. So I, I was looking at the, the you, you mentioned the World Economic Forum, they do, a, they do an equity gap. So they don't just look at pay equity, but they look at, uh, they look at the political landscape, like how, how much women are involved in the political landscape versus men. They look at how, like the economic, what they call the economic gap, which is not just about the pay, but also about where they are in their careers relative, relative to men. Mm-hmm. And, and they, they look at education and they look at one other point that is slipping my mind. But the point of view is education, there are 95, like in, on the 2018 study, there are 95% in education. So mm-hmm. the, the gap has almost closed in education. Women are as educated as men. Mm-hmm. So that's not causing the challenge. But when you look at the like economic forum, they're at 56% or somewhere around that level they are, they are in it, which means that there's so many women there that are not making the amount of money are not hitting the same milestones in their career as men. And, and then on the political landscape, which I think it's something worth noting because I think it's driving it, there are 22%, mm. right? And so that, that in itself is saying that one, the people who are making laws to, to make it better are not even women. Mm-hmm. And, and then the companies who are doing it, the women are not there. So like, I think women have done a lot of what they can do and get into the same education level. Mm-hmm. But now we need to do a lot more. And like, that's why the conversation has to open up to men, to companies, to politicians. Like, uh, this is a conversation that everyone needs to help solve. Yeah. And uh, just to kind of build on that, I saw today that uh, the last... Uh, I think it was Fortune 500 companies uh, boards uh, have included women on their board. Uh, so like there are slow, there's slow progress in this space. You know, traditionally a lot of uh, the boards of directors of big companies were almost exclusively male. That's part of why, uh, you know, the fearless girl statue was, uh, was a, a big uh, zeitgeisty thing uh, in uh, down by Wall Street uh, a few years ago. Um, so we are seeing some preliminary progress there, 
but uh, but I think it's more uh, to your point, Melissa. It's more systemic. So like, you know, the the risk is that you make a little bit of progress in one place or another, and then you kind of ease up. And I think uh, when you really dig further into the data, you start to understand that these gaps are still very wide, even though in some places we're making progress. Uh, there's still so much work left to be done. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it's easy to, you know, take a win, do a victory lap, and then move on to the next topic that, that bubbles up. And I think to actually win this game, it's going to have to be a longer fight. Um, and then I think education does play a huge role in it. You know, how, do you, how do you talk to girls about their, uh, their career aspirations and, you know, there was a lot of stuff in the in the World Economic Forum and, and elsewhere around the types of career tracks uh, that women take uh, versus men. Uh, there's been some movement there, but there's still a significant gap where uh, the more highly paid professions are still more predominantly male. Um, so like that's an area to address. Uh, and then I also think, um, interestingly, like the, the ability to negotiate effectively um, you know, Melissa, I, I know that's something, uh, you know, you have experience in and you've, you've learned about, but that is, uh, it is uh, interesting to me that the, the reason why this is bubbling up to the level that it, it is, is that the, the, the U.S. women's soccer team has so much leverage now and they have an opportunity to assert that leverage and negotiate with, with an angle. Um, and in many ways, that's something that at least historically women haven't felt they had uh, permission to do that. So, uh, you know, I know you studied negotiation, uh, you know, when you're getting your MBA. Um, any thoughts on that? Just like how, um, in a lot of ways, uh, you know, there is education that needs to reach girls and women around uh, being effective negotiators that will start to, to sort of break down some of these gaps. Yeah, so I mean, I'll, I will... I will add one more like data point to this, right? So in a field like teaching, which we think is predominantly uh, women in general right now, uh, studies have shown that the pay gap is still exists there. And uh, the, what they have seen, right, in, in some studies is that on entrance, women get paid um, like 42,000 as a starting teacher versus men getting paid 45,000, mm -hmm. right? So even in a field that's already predominantly women, you still see it. And so one of the things, and like it's correlation causation, like, like people are pointing to is exactly the point you're saying. Like women do not tend to negotiate their salaries on the way in mm -hmm. as, as men typically do. So the, the, the advice I always give women, yes, I did study negotiations, uh, I was very lucky at when I went to business school that it is something that not only we study in class negotiations, but they give us a lot of coaching on how you ask for a salary, what you ask for a salary, what are the types of conversations you should have. So I know it. So I, I've gotten a lot of experience in, in, in that field. And what I encourage women to do is one, there is virtually very little downside to asking for a, a, a pay increase mm -hmm. to, to get an information. And if you want to feel more comfortable with what you're doing, a lot of the questions you should be asking of your friends or your colleagues, do your research, mm -hmm. know that my starting salary as a teacher should be 45,000 or know my starting salary as a, as a consultant should be 130,000 or whatever the, the going rate for a consultant is right now. Mm -hmm. Know that information going in. And if that's not what you got, 
ask a lot of questions about why it isn't and what reason it isn't and ask a lot of questions up front before you take the job about what it is that like, what is the merit cycle look like? What does the promotion cycle look like? Uh, what does bonuses look like? And if, if you can't give me X in salary, can I get a sign in bonus, right? Because there are so many different points that men ask for more money than that women just never choose to do. And, and in all my research and in all the people I've coached around this, I've never had one person go back and say, uh, yeah, they said um, they're going to rescind the job. The right. most they can do is say that, you know, we're not comfortable paying that or we're not going to pay that. And here's X, Y, and Z reason. But what you've done is put a, a company on notice that, like, you, you understand how much you work and you want to understand what it takes to be successful in an organization, which is the way I frame every conversation. This is not necessarily about my salary and what my potential, uh, what my potential future salary is. It's about what does it actually take to, to be successful in this company and the salary is a proxy for, for that success. Yeah. Yeah, no, a lot, a lot of value in, uh, in that advice. And, and uh, interestingly, uh, you know, even though, uh, you know, we don't want to, you don't want to diminish the, the gaps around uh, pay equity between genders, but that same coaching is relevant to men too. So like, there are, you know, I think there's a larger segment of men who know how to negotiate uh, when they come into a, a job. But, uh, but as someone who's been on both sides of these types of negotiations, um, you know, you work with what's presented to you. And a lot of these tactics are not, you know, only relevant to women, they're relevant uh, to men as well. So like, I do think there is an element of, um, uh, raising awareness and addressing these inequities uh, that is specifically about women. But I think some of the tactics around being an effective negotiator, uh, being an assertive candidate, um, it's not something that's really formally taught. Like if you're fortunate enough to have a coach or a mentor, uh, someone like yourself, Melissa, who's sort of like looking out for you, maybe you get it from a parent, maybe you get it from, uh, you know, an ally. But um, but it does feel like those are things that uh, are surprisingly absent from traditional uh, educational contexts. You get a little more of it around business school, but I'm always struck by how uh, siloed these educational opportunities are uh, for folks who maybe you're, you're lucky enough to pursue an MBA. So like you take a class in negotiation or maybe you're a self-starter and you say, you know, I want to take, uh, you know, some courses in this, or I want to find them in, you know, online. But, um, but I do think there, there's just a lack of awareness. You know, we've talked about when we were talking about, um, you know, digital readiness and uh, Coursera's global skills index, same thing, like, people don't always know where do I find these resources? What are the things that are actually going to make an impact to my life? Um, I think it's most relevant uh, to women, but I, but, but I think it's also just hugely relevant to people. Um, and then it's also interesting if you do cut it by, um, by uh, socioeconomic status or, uh, or race or other cuts, um, the access tends to go to uh, folks who have privilege. Uh, and those are the folks who come in, you know, with that sense of entitlement, that sense of assertiveness in a negotiation. Um, but I think there's a big opportunity for learning companies, for educators, for advocates to 
you really open up that knowledge and uh and you know that's something that hopefully you know if you're a listener to this show and you're someone who has access uh you know to to young minds or people who are trying to rise in their careers um you know take some time to to coach take some time to to advocate for others uh melissa i know you've done that a lot um how does that relate to this like how, like do do is this something that more of us need to be uh, activated against, like finding folks who uh, who kind of need that push and and help them get uh, a little bit further in their lives? Yeah, I mean, so I I started coaching very early on because when I started learning information and realizing how much I did not know, uh, just from um, not even just my background, like I I grew up in the Caribbean, it is not. Typically, something we talk about in, like in, in the Caribbean is how to find a job, how to ask for salaries. It's just not a conversation we have. Uh, so I, when I started learning more about this, I felt it was my duty to go back and, and, and tell people everything I learned. Because we, we're talking a lot about paying, how you ask for salaries and negotiation. But it goes a lot to even like your interviewing process. Like, like, like I, in, in Chicago, I used to uh, talk to the inner city schools in Chicago and children who were graduated from high school going into college. And even the way you, you apply to college and you do that interview and understanding what you can and cannot say in an interview, those things like set you on a path of like where you will not, like your, your pay equity will not be the same, whether you're, whether you're a minority uh, like, or a person of color or like, like, uh, like a poor, uh, coming from a poor community. If you don't have someone giving you this advice, you, you for sure are not starting on even foot. So yeah, it's part of why I continue to have the conversation. It's part of why uh, I, I think people get sick of me talking about this and saying, you gotta ask more. Mm-hmm. And, and you gotta ask a lot more questions. And like, this is such a like a typical like use and a common phrase that it, it almost seems irrelevant to say it, but education is key. So in everything you do, the more information you arm yourself with, the better, right? And in a negotiation, not only understanding what you're worth, understanding like, like what the company values, what the company doesn't value, is such an important thing to understand as you go into that negotiation, what your expectations should be about your salary, about your job and so forth. And so I, I joke around because I don't know if maybe you guys knew this going in, but even like, a, why do I have to ask questions to the interviewers? Like, why, like they're interviewing me, they should tell me if they want me for the job. Why do I have to ask questions, right? Mm-hmm. That is the mentality I had when I was younger, mm-hmm. right? But those questions, the questions that you ask an interviewer, forget that they just expect you to do it. Those questions that you ask them give you enough information to then go into a conversation with them about, I get that this is what they value and this is what I value and, and coming up with a reasonable expectation mm-hmm. for your salary. And that's, and that's the reason you do it. Yeah, well, and, and I, even building on that point, um, hiring managers live in the same world that the rest of us do as well. So they are understanding, they may even be under pressure uh, to make hires that are against the patterns that they've been sort of executing against throughout their careers. So like a lot of the the bias on the hiring side is unconscious. Like they're they're used to hiring people who look like them, think like them, come from backgrounds that are similar to theirs if there's an opportunity for you to connect to 
some of the training that is likely to be in the organization. Uh, also, it's worth doing some research around uh, what kind of hiring practices there are within the organization that you're interviewing with. But then understand that uh, even if, you know, at face value, I might be concerned about bias on the other side, uh, there may be a, an opportunity there too, where like, you know, the value of cognitive diversity in a workforce is something that is, is becoming more widely understood. So the idea that, you know, if you're, high, if you're a woman, uh, maybe a woman of color who's trying to get a job in uh, financial services, for example, you really are an asset. Like you're an asset in ways you may not have realized if traditionally that organization is, uh, is not really, doesn't really have people who think like you. Um, a lot of the research, the prevailing research around diversity and inclusion is that it's not just the right thing to do uh, from like a moral standpoint. It's actually the right thing to do in terms of making better decisions and understanding untapped market opportunities. Um, so, you know, in some ways, uh, you know, you have an opportunity to present with strength in ways that wasn't really there uh, historically. Like I do think, you know, I mentioned the, the whole watershed inflection point. It does feel like the world is changing. Obviously there are folks who are, you know, rebelling against this uh, maybe rising wave but you may not want to get hired by those people anyway. Um, but, um, but I mean, when I'm not saying you're interviewing right now, I don't want to, I don't want to get your, uh, your, the, the people you work for concerned, but, uh, but when you, when you, when you're interviewing, uh, Melissa, like, how do you think about things like this? Like, how do you think about, um, you know, like one of the aspects of negotiation that I've gotten better at over the years is understanding what it must feel like to be on the other side of the table. Um, any thoughts on that, like how that might relate to, to anything we were just talking about? So, I mean, one, um, I haven't interviewed in a very long time. I'm very happy with my current job and I am not looking, yeah. but because my memory goes back far when I am interviewing, right? Yeah. I mean, like one, I am, I typically sit on the other side right now. I do a lot of interviews to hire people mm -hmm. and the thing I think it's very important that I try to do on my side, like when I'm hiring right now, that I think if candidates also try to do a lot more on their side, it would be helpful in, in terms of that. It's like we all come from diverse backgrounds, right? And we should absolutely promote that on Sandat and it, it's really helpful in, in organizations. And yes, there's a ton of research that we wouldn't even get into now that shows how diversity improves. Um, just the bottom line of companies, just the employee engagement and everything else. But the other thing I always try to point out to people is like, there's almost always common ground between humans that you can find. And you should always look for that with your interviewees. So I think I, I throw a lot of candidates off because one of the, the last questions I always ask them is, is what do you do for fun, mm -hmm. right? Because there's a very good chance that what you are doing in your personal life is very similar to what I'm doing in my personal life or someone else on my team is doing in my personal life. And I, I do it so that I had the last candidate tell me that they're an avid snowboarder. Right. And snowboarding is something that um, I got into very late in life, but I really enjoy talking about it. Mm -hmm. So I think I should be a better snowboarder, given that I'm a, a, I used to skateboard. But that is building like I got into a 10 minute conversation with a candidate where I got them to relax about that. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and I think that's important. Right. Because if you have in an interview. Right. What you're looking for, I, at least what I'm looking for as an interviewer is two things. 
can they do the job? And do I actually want to work with this person? Mm-hmm. And the do the job is the skill set and, and the education and everything else. And I look for the diversity of thought in, in that element. But do, do I want to work for them? I'm looking for somebody that I can have a conversation about, about snowboarding or running or, or PlayStation or something else. And so you can always find those areas and you should always, always be looking for that when you ask those type of questions. As most of we talked through this uh, about the individual hiring manager, what they can do and how we can better understand them. You talked a little bit about the corporation or the sort of the larger entity. What can they be doing better in this gender equity, this gender gap idea? Uh, and how can we better serve each other with maybe what the, the businesses can provide to us information wise, honesty wise, transparency wise? What do you think they can provide to help this conversation move forward? So there, there's an interesting thing. So we've talked a lot about the hiring process and when we hire, bringing people in on equal footing. I think there's a lot that's happening within the, comp- the company. Once you're there, the unconscious bias that Mike talked about, about like, like oh, I just relate to this person better. So like it, uh, naturally, I think even though the skill level may be comparable, I, uh, I think Mike should be promoted over Melissa. Like those, those things I think happen unconsciously. And so one of the things I do believe that we, we should be doing more as a company, as uh, if uh, men in the organization, women in the organization, the company on board, is making sure we have very fair standards and known standards for why someone is going to be promoted versus not, right? And it doesn't have to be as formal as a, like we have this performance review and we fill out these forms, but as a manager, all right, in an organization, regardless of what the entire company has, like standards around it, you should set, before you start evaluating your employees, you should set, look, these are the skill sets that I believe that I am looking for in this level versus the next level and know them before you even start the conversations with your employees, mm-hmm. because you want to be able to point back to, I am, I am going to promote that person X because he is really good at communications and his skill set is on par, his technical skill sets in par with what I set pre-established before, because mm-hmm. personality for sure will play an important role, like play an unconscious role in your promotion uh, bias if, if, you're, if you don't have your set, standards set. And that is something that even like take it out from, take it out from like this pay equity and, and fairness for a while. In negotiations, right? We like in the negotiation class, we always talk about buying a house, right? And the one thing they tell you to do is before you go in and look at any house, you say, I need that house to have four rooms. I need it to be here. I need it to be um, in this area. Um, I need it to have two bathrooms. Because if you don't set the standards, when you go into that house, something is going to trigger you that's going to either I like it or I don't like it. And when you're comparing, you're going to be going off of this gut feeling and you're going to make a choice that is probably not rational and you're going to fall in love with the house Mm -hmm. and pay a premium for something that you just think you like rather than what you want no and and so I think that's the same that happens when you're like actually interviewing employees and and evaluating employees if you don't have clear standards in your mind about why you're doing it then you're going to make poor poor choices in in doing it yeah and and just to build on that too I think sometimes uh as you're as you become more aware of your unconscious bias you can make choices that go against what your initial instincts are. And I think that's something that I've, I've gotten better at over my career and I've found uh, that it can make a huge difference, uh, 
particularly in opening up opportunities to people who wouldn't have had it otherwise. So like if you, you just followed your instinct, you'd go with the typical choice and you would sort of perpetuate the, the system in the way that it is today. Um, there was another interesting article I read in um, the Harvard Business Review uh, about a sort of next level um, Moneyball and rather Moneyball was more about hiring people who were against type. But this was talking more about better ball where like you wanted to hire people with the most ability to grow. And um, I think that's an interesting yeah. thing to think about as well, where like in addition to the cognitive diversity, being willing to take a chance on someone who maybe doesn't fit the, the prototype, you know, it's the same idea of hiring for a cultural ad as opposed to a cultural fit, uh, which we've talked about in the past. Like if you have gaps, be aware of them and think about them as part of the, the hiring process. Um, and then depending on how assertive you feel as a candidate, maybe that's an area that you want to uh, explore too. Like if that is a place where you want to understand like, you know, what's your position on uh, cognitive diversity? I particularly like cognitive diversity because it, it gets out of uh, some of the more narrow ways in which people identify um, or maybe stereotype. And if instead it's more like, how do you think about making decisions and how do you think about just like different perspectives? Uh, and a lot of those different perspectives really come from lived experience. So like if everyone has lived a similar life with a similar background, uh, again, not to, not to pile on uh, financial services, but that's an area where like I know historically it's been almost exclusively like white men who are running these organizations who hire more white men. Um, I think, uh, there are uh, next generation models that are emerging that are actually breaking from that. And then by virtue of breaking those conventions, you, you actually establish a competitive advantage because you're not, you're not limited by the narrowness of the perspective that, uh, that people on the other side might have. Like if you hire people who look like you and think like you, they're not really gonna add anything to your group process. So like whoever you are, however you think, you know, you almost, you, you want to over-index on difference rather than sameness. Yeah, yeah, plus one. And I'll add one more thing to, to this whole mix, right? As a company, I think to combat uh, the unconscious biases uh, that we have, let's start looking at facts and data. So one of the interesting things people always talk about is, and again, it's not the same in every company, is whether women, when they, when they take leaves to, for childbirth and come back, does that have a, a, a impact on the salary? Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure if it does in every, every company, but it's a very easy thing to, to see, right? If you look at women, look at their salary trajectory in your organization before and after, it's like you're gonna start to see the trends, right? And there's so much data that we, we collect on, on our employees that we should be able to start to know this information and start to use it to help uh, like eliminate some of the unconscious biases we have mm -hmm. in our organization. The uh, New York Times upshot, their digital uh, data collection uh, company over there had a big study on that, I think in 2017 on uh, maternity leave and the pay gap acceleration that happens therein and how that is something that is not addressed to your point as clearly as it should be. Uh, great discussion. Melissa, I don't know if you have any final closing thoughts or maybe 
jumping off points, more discussions that can come around this topic and similar topics. Uh, but I'll, I'll give it to you first. And then Mike, uh, any closing thoughts you have around pay equity, the women's national team and how this topic may round out in the future. I mean, I, I think, look, the, the bottom line I could uh, keep saying without saying is information is key, right? Like understanding, and there's so many sites out there of what salaries people get in what jobs is information that women should look up. Like companies tend to keep the information secret, which is right, but employees have noticed and started to notice that the more they talk about the salaries in different locations, that like you understand at least what your range is and, and that's, that information is powerful in, in knowing what you're worth, asking questions and being very purposeful about your career, right? Don't just assume that because like you're doing an excellent job that someone else, that someone else is going to know this. Make sure you're advocating for yourself or having others advocate for you. Mike, any closing thoughts? Uh, just kind of building on that, that idea too. I would say, um, the idea of being an ally and an advocate for others uh, and sort of being able to empathize as uh, someone who, who may have, uh, you know, through no fault of your own, you may have benefited from, uh, from your, your, your position or your, your gender or your, uh, your background, uh, be open to finding, uh, folks to mentor who are, are maybe different from you. And uh, obviously if you are, uh, if, if, if you index differently than I'm speaking as a white man to white men, um, like I think the idea, especially in the, in the Me Too movement and everything, you know, like it, you should still seek out opportunities to mentor and advocate for women and to mentor and advocate for, for people who, who don't look like you and don't come from your background. And um, I think that's, that's really, you know, there's a lot of grassroots activity that's happening that is starting, like the women's soccer team is a great example of it, that's starting to signal this change. But frequently the people who are in power are going to need to um, open up to their thinking and figure out how to advocate uh, for others. And uh, I think in many cases that will actually require white men to evolve their thinking. So, um, so I, you know, and it's, I'll own it. Like uh, I've, there are many places where I, I've, I've had biases that I've, that I've sort of realized late in my life. And, um, you know, that's okay too. Like, don't feel like you're a bad person when you start to realize, oh man, I didn't realize I was actually biased in that way. Like you, you just learn something when, when you make that, uh, that connection. Um, but, um, but yeah, I really uh, appreciate uh, getting Melissa on the show. Looking forward to getting her on the show more. And hopefully, uh, hopefully we'll be able to explore topics like this uh, on a more regular basis because I think we're just scratching the surface. I agree wholeheartedly there. This is a topic we can come back to many times over in different genres, different businesses, and also how's, how the women's national team proceeds. And I'll uh, agree with you, Mike. I've taken a long time to realize some of my own personal biases, realize some uh, almost every day of, of what you and how you interact with different people. And so uh, being open and honest and being able to listen uh, and learn each day, I think is a, a huge, huge uh, improvement for anybody out there as we talk about topics like this and others and just helping others and being allies uh, to other people in the workplace, at home or wherever you may be. As always, we appreciate you all listening here on Trending in Education. We'd love to hear from you on social media. It's at Trending in Ed on Facebook, same on Twitter. Follow us on both. You'll get the episodes and more content. We'll share some of the articles uh, that we use for content here for this episode and others over on Twitter and Facebook. And of course, you can find us at trendingineducation.com. 
you have topics you want us to cover, we'd love to hear from you as well. With that said, thanks as always for listening to Trending in Education.